If it was physically possible, I would love to lift you straight out here from this area and take you into the heart of the Negev. Take you into the very heart of the wilderness. Because it's there we get the setting for one of the most exciting love affairs that is imaginable. <coughs> so as we go, at least in our imaginations, we're going to go there and spend some time. You'll feel a substantial difference in the heat. It's <laughs> maybe hitting about 40 centigrade. You will be perspiring at all the extremities that you have. But oh, we have just so much to learn in this place. Because the striking thing is, this is literally no man's land. That's where God took Israel to teach them. Right into the heart of no man's land. See, when I can, I take teaching tours to Israel. And we reach the stage now where we simply do not go into one single church building. Because there's nothing more annoying to me than these tours that go to Israel. They're glorified kind of ecclesiastical crawls where you see the little sign, you know, Mary bought her bread here, Joseph cut his nails here. <laughs> All this kind of stuff that drives you absolutely back. And you know the striking thing is? It is only on the Christian sites. And I use that in its broadest sense, the sites under either Orthodox or Latin control, it is only on the Christian sites you get the signs, no bare arms, no bare knees, no photography, no smoking, no guns, no dogs. It's no wonder the Christian, you know, the cynic says, churches, that's where these Christians go to develop their negatives. <laughs> it's very sad, but look, no, we're going right out into the wilderness. It's a place, it is all inspiring jaw-dropping in its sheer majesty. And when you come into this wilderness and you appreciate this is the place where God took Israel. Now, just at the most basic level, it is the place to go to regain a sense of awe and wonder. We've got in the West now, what is it, 50 shades of grey. You can go to Israel and get a thousand shades of brown and find that they are in their diversity so phenomenally rich it's there you appreciate the value of rock of shade of water the psalms they just come to life you suddenly realize the inextricable and inseparable bond between the text and the land itself you stand sometimes and you just have to praise the almighty I think that's one of the things we have lost, certainly in post-Enlightenment Europe, is the sense of awe and wonder and majesty, the bigness of it all. But when you come into the wilderness, as it were, everything is stripped away. You begin to see human vulnerability. It's when you walk down through, maybe in the bottom of some of these huge river valleys of the Nahas, you, you begin to understand Psalm 23 as never before. When you're walking in the bottom of some of these river valleys, you see, 
A rain can occur on the headlands and way up in the Judean hills. Without any notice, it will flash flood right down through these deep river valleys. And if you're walking in the bottom of them, you'll not be drowned. You'll be battered off the walls. You'll die virtually instantly in places where the sun never reaches. You think then of the resounding confidence of the psalmist, when I am in the valley of the shadow, even of death itself, you don't instantaneously lift me up. You are with me in the hardest of places, when I feel the most vulnerable, when I feel the most susceptible. There you are with me. We can learn so much, even just as we look at the animal world. We can learn things from the animals that I believe that humans have forgotten about. And you see, this is one of the great threads that runs through particularly, you know, the wisdom literature in Job and in Psalms and in Proverbs. Look to the animals. Sometimes they are more responsive than human beings. For even the donkey knows its stall. For many human beings really have no sense of direction or orientation at all. But come right down into the south. Come into the south and if you feel the heat and you begin to appreciate God kept Israel here for what? You know, for several decades. And as you walk through this area, you begin to see this is God's extended kindergarten. A place where he would teach them in a very, very real way. It's a place where you constantly get encouragements. Do you know to me... And, and I hope you'll find this encouragement in your, your own work. When you go into one of the famous <coughs> Nahals or river valleys, it's called Ingeri. You'll have heard of it. David hit there. The uh, Song of Songs celebrates love in the context of, of Engedi. But as you get into Engedi and you, you step into this water, and it is so invigorating and it's so refreshing, and you immerse yourself in it, What's interesting, if you got into a car, you can leave Engedi and be in Jerusalem, climb up in 40 minutes. Now here's the exciting bit to me. When you step into this water, this water fell as rain in Jerusalem. But where you and I can make the journey from Engedi to Jerusalem in 40 minutes. Guess how long it took that water that fell on the streets of Jerusalem, went into the drains in Jerusalem, and then comes out at Engedi, just on the edge of the Dead Sea. That water you step into today, the geologists will tell you fell a hundred years ago in Jerusalem. But it took a hundred years to work its way down through the kind of the karst scenery and eventually come out. Do you ever feel that way at times sometimes when you look around today? It's as if, you know, like the day of judges, the word of God seems to, it seems to be rare. Many poo-poo it, they belittle it, they, they laugh at it, they deny it. And they think this is just ancient history. But you see, it springs like this remind me that God at times may seem 
to have disappeared. But it's just he's working underground. He hasn't disappeared. And he one day will surface with such refreshing grandeur and glory that it simply defies our powers to understand it or to appreciate it. You learn so much as you walk the wilderness. The subtlety of many and many of the lessons. But you know I'm convinced that really the Irish were there <laughs> to help the Israelites. And do you know why? Because right in the very, very middle of the Negev, on a blistering hot day, it's hitting nearly 40 centigrade. What could be more refreshing? <laughs> yeah, I think there were men of a different spirit. <laughs> but anyway, come out into the wilderness with me for a little while. Because as we go out here into this, it's not just about awe and wonder and majesty, it's about learning. The first Prime Minister of Israel, David Ben Gurion, in his later years, retired to the wilderness. His house still stands. But there's a quotation beside that house that I think is a very powerful one. It says this, that it is in the Negev that the creativity and the pioneer vigor of Israel shall be tested. Now I think there's a very powerful element of spiritual truth in that. Because I believe God took Israel into the wilderness for the ultimate reality check. And that's why I want us to come here this morning, today for a little while. And as we're in this wilderness to encounter God and be refreshed. See, when you begin to read the Torah, and it's very, very unfortunate that that's translated into English, the law. That's a dreadful translation. The word Torah comes, as virtually every other word in Hebrew, from a verb. And the verb behind Torah is yara. And yara originally meant to fire an arrow. So that when you take an arrow, you aim, you give it direction. That's the verb you use. When you take a person and you teach them, when you take a child and you teach them, you put their life on the right direction. You want to aim them towards the target. That's why to this day in Israel, a lady teacher is called a mora. Mora from Dora. You see, a teacher puts a person in the right direction. That's the word that's used, by the way, in Proverbs 1. My son, I want you to listen to your mother because your mother's Torah. Your mother wants to put you in the right direction. So that's from the very beginning, God's teaching. He wants to put people in the right direction. Torah is not a negative kind of download of heavy legalism. When I think of law, law for me is a freckled face, a policeman's uniform, and steps out and books me for doing 49 miles an hour in a 30 mile zone. That's law. Law is there to catch you when you do wrong. But Torah is about teaching, guidance, direction, instruction. 
So that's why I would venture to suggest to you, particularly across the Christian community, we need a renewed and a refreshed look at these opening books of the scripture. And when we come to a book we call Numbers, we find in the Hebrew Bible it is called Ba-Mizbah. Now remember, the names we have, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those are names that are all derived from a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. It was made about 200 years before Jesus, when one of the Ptolemaic rulers of Egypt wanted a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. So they came, and these Greek thinkers thought, this first book, it's all about beginnings. So they called it Genesis, their word for beginning. They said the second book is about the way, hodos, out, acts. So they call it acts, hodos. They said the third book, well, it's all addressed to Leviticus, Levitical priests. So they called it Luiticon. And they came to the fourth book. They said, oh, there's a lot of counting here. There's a lot of numbers. There's censuses. So we'll call it arithmoi, arithmetic, numbers. But you know, in the Hebrew Bible, the names of the book come from the first important words in the text. So the first book is Barashit, at the beginning, at the head of. The second book is Shemu, Shemu, and these are the names of. The third book we call Leviticus, they call Vayikra, and he said. And then the fourth book, Va Midbar. Now this is where the colour comes in. You see, Midbar is actually the Hebrew word for wilderness. Now we're not going to look at Hebrew to be smart. That's not what this is about. But it's to savour things from language that we miss in English. (laughs) Remember, every translation, at best, is an interpretation. But if we can savour the original at times. You see, this word Midbar... Now, Midbar here is written against the background. There's a wonderful graphic artist, an Israeli graphic artist, who lives in Tel Aviv. And he has developed what's called chronotaxed. And Ariel Malka, he does some fascinating things. He creates biblical landscapes, hence you get the kind of the rolling landscape of the wilderness here. And then in real time, he can superimpose the Hebrew text on it. And in fact, at the flick of a, just flick of a click or click of a flick, you can change it into any language in the world. He does some fascinating stuff. When you get time, look up chronotext. We don't have time now to develop. But the lovely thing is, he makes you relate the land to the text. Now, you take this word midbar. Now, if we were all learning Hebrew together, the striking thing is, Hebrew is what they call a consonantal language. Now, can you imagine reading the newspaper, or if Janice sent you out the schedule for this, these few days, and she didn't put any vowels in it? When you open a Torah scroll, there's not a vowel in sight. You supply the vowels that you read. Context dictates. So, Roger tells you there's this guy coming to speak, and he's R.D. So you have to supply the vowels. He's R.D. Is he Arab? Is he a Presbyterian minister? Dry as dust. He's Arab. Or is he red? 
or she read. Context supplies. You see the vowels. That's why often in rabbinic tradition you get such variations in the interpretation of any text. Now, when you look here, you see the word midbar. I've highlighted the consonants. The second, the fourth book of the Torah is called Ba Midbar, literally in the wilderness. Ba Midbar. Now here's the interesting bit. Because the rabbis, well, you see, they employ what I sometimes call the merriment method. You get words that are too good to hurry. Okay? This is a great principle of hermeneutics. Merriment principle. Too good to hurry. Savor it. Peel the onion. When you, they look at the word, you see, midbar, they actually see D, B, R, which are the consonants of another word, dabar, which is the Hebrew word for word. So they would say, Israel was taken into the midbar to hear the dabar. Israel is taken out into the wilderness into no man's land so that they will hear God's word. It is precisely in the wilderness that they are going to learn. Humans do not live by stuff or things alone, but by every dabar that comes from the mouth of the living God. You see, this is why it's so important to come into the wilderness. And that is why, as an expression of intense love, God says to Israel, after years of rebellion and profligacy, after them prostituting themselves, after them being rebellious, he says, let me take you back into the wilderness and we're going to have a time of courtship together. Let's have a little bit of read at it to set the context. Hosea chapter 2. Hosea chapter 2. Obviously, we're applying here the whole historical background after the period of infidelity on Israel's part, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom. By the way, don't you see a remarkable parallel between the history of Israel and, and certainly the history of Ireland? Because it divides into the north and into the south. And all the boys up north say no to all the boys down south. It's just so like it. But now after years, then this wonderful insight into the long-suffering and patience of God. Hosea chapter 2. Look at verse 14. Therefore I am now going to allure her, that is Israel. I will lead her into the wilderness, the desert, and I will speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards. I will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. Then she will sing as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. By the way, that's a play on the word Baal. Because Baal can be a pagan deity, can also be master, lord, or husband. There's an interesting kind of play on words here. 
I will remove the name of the Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. But in that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land so that all may lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. Here is the Lord speaking into a situation where his relationship with Israel had been disrupted because of their infidelity, because of their disobedience. To understand this, we've got to, I think again, go back to the Exodus. I'm not sure in Christian circles if we really take seriously enough how important as a prototype the Exodus is. That we've got to let that seep down into our depth, the very depth of our being. It is one of the most profound insights into the divine way of operating. And as we look at that, what is at the heart of it? It was God bringing them out from under the totalitarian regime of Pharaoh and bringing them to experience, and here's the paradox, true freedom that is found in being his slaves. Isn't it very striking actually in the original that exactly the same verb is used of serving Pharaoh as it is used of serving God. When Moses confronted God, uh, confronted Pharaoh and he said, let these people go that they may serve God, they, he was using exactly the same verb. Now how come under Pharaoh it is life draining, death threatening, totalitarian slavery but under God, it is life-giving. How? See, this, this becomes quite fascinating. And one of the first steps towards understanding this is to challenge that kind of dualistic mentality that's crept into our Western way of looking at things, where we divide between the spiritual life and the kind of the, the public life. Where we divide between the workaday world and the private and the spiritual world. When you're learning Hebrew, you discover where we have a word for work and a word for worship. In Hebrew, those two come together in one word. And it's that word about serving. Avad. Avodah is a wonderful word for service. What a wonderful challenge to be able to teach people that you don't compartmentalize life. But all of life can be a form of service of Avodah to God and I don't just have the spiritual part of my life and then I have you know, well my responsibilities profession all of life this is holistic I'd love to develop that a little bit more we don't have time now but at the heart of the Exodus it wasn't that the Lord brought them to Sinai remember Exodus 19 I brought you to myself brought you to myself and what is I find enormously refreshing and very very helpful 
is to understand the events at Mount Sinai through Hebrew lenses, through Jewish eyes. And you know that what happened when God brought Israel to himself was that he expressed his love by marrying Israel. And to this day, even in rabbinic circles, the events at Mount Sinai are seen as a wedding. And subsequently, every Jewish wedding, even when it takes place today, is a model of what took place actually at Mount Sinai. And the lovely thing, one of the most vivid pictures is, do you remember in Exodus 19, the glory cloud, the Shekinah, came down from above and hovered over the mountain? Well, to this day, a wedding takes place under a chuppah, a canopy, that reflects the glory presence of God. That lovely picture, where you begin to see the intimacy of marriage, of male and female, and even the intimacy of sexuality under the brooding presence of the glory cloud of God. We need to regain that because Christians are so often on a back foot. We're accused of, oh, we don't talk about sex. We have no robust doctrine of sex. It's all negative. We've got to reclaim this ground and see the wonderful things that God has actually given that are protected within the bounds of marriage. And here is his glory. But here's the biting irony now. At the very moment when Moses is sealing this relationship with God at the top of the mountain, what's happening at the bottom of the mountain? Israel's being unfaithful. Israel's building a golden calf. At that very moment, they've made for themselves a golden calf. And particularly when we read the account in Exodus, and then when we read some Pauline perspectives of it, we see that associated with this calf, not only was idolatry the main theme, but all sorts of immorality, all sorts of kind of sexual indulgence as well. So look at, the, look at the biting irony here. At this moment, when God and Moses was entering into the most intimate of reciprocal relationships, at the bottom of the mountain, Israel was being unfaithful. The very bride was being unfaithful. Adultery was taking place under the very brooding presence of God himself. And you know, even in rabbinic tradition, they tell the story of a bride and groom. And just at the moment when the wedding is reaching its climax, they tell the story, said one of the rabbis, that shameless is the bride who plays the harlot while still under her wedding canopy. That was that human capacity to be unfaithful even at this moment of divine revelation. And has the history of the human response to God been any different down through the years? Because the golden calf is still very, very much with us. The golden calf and all that the ideology that's associated with it, it manifests itself in different forms now. The golden calf can come in the form, you know, where associated with it, Maybe it doesn't have the physical form of the golden calf, but it has its cathedrals, it has its arenas, it has its heroes. 
And how many are bowing down to the great enthusiasms of our day? How many find, as the Times reported recently, the names of footballers are now more frequent on headstones than the name of Jesus? The human capacity to be unfaithful and to direct our love and our allegiance to some false focus. It's built into the human fabric. So what I want you to do, as you think about the prophets of Israel, is to see a theme that's not merely historical, but one that is timeless. Because like the prophets of Israel, we've got to wrestle with the reality of idolatry and adultery. We've got to address through the lens of the prophets the violation of the relationship with God. It showed itself in many, many forms. Idolatry, polytheism, disloyalty, dishonesty, economic oppression. All manifestations ultimately of a spiritual adultery. (coughs) You don't need me to tell you the challenges of working in the midst of an adulterous world. Has it ever been easy? No, it hasn't. And I think this is why it's good to look back to these prophets. And even to the days of Noah, to find the challenges were always real. Because what you'll notice is, particularly as you read in Deuteronomy and in the prophets, There was a spiritual condition that manifested itself. It presented itself in the wilderness. But I don't know about you, but I'm finding it very common today. I'm not sure if you've come across it. The strange thing is, now, I'm coming obviously from a very sheltered background in that place they call Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland has its own peculiarities. But maybe you've noticed this manifesting itself in the mainland too. It's very common and very dangerous. It's a state called sclerotrachalosis. Now, sclerotrachalosis, when you simply break it down, sclero obviously has to do with pathological hardening, sclerosis. The trachalosis that kind of gives it away, your trachea, because at the popular level, sclerotrachalosis is simply being stiff neck. And you see, that was the problem of Israel. They were stiff neck. And this was the condition. And it was hardening and hardening and hardening until this point. And this is the wonderful insight into the very powerful, long-suffering and patience of God. Where God says, let me take you out into the wilderness where we first courted. And let's discover the reality and the intimacy and the reciprocity and the mutuality of love again. And it's out into the wilderness. And as we come out into the wilderness... I hope we'll have this sense, and it's a bit like withdrawing here. We're, we're moving away, we're not escaping, 
But as it were, we're saying, we're peeling off all the distractions just for a little while. We're going to concentrate on the intimacy, on the love. See, as God took Israel out into the wilderness, and that idea where I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. You see that verb know. Hebrew, by the way, is a verbal language. Every word is ultimately derived from verbs. And their verbs are often like onions. You can peel the layers. So when God says, so that you shall know the Lord, you can legitimately, quite legitimately, see there are layers to this. There is knowing God, there is a kind of an intellectual, legal, covenantal side. But there is also a sexual, intimate side as well. Just as Adam knew Eve. Just as Exodus chapter 2, when the Lord, at the heart of the Exodus said, he knew Israel and he brought them out. It speaks of intimacy. No indelicacy, no impurity here. But just the, the depth of the intimacy. And you see, this brings us to the very heart of God's relationship with his people. I love what Tom Torrance, who taught many, many years as part of an extended family in Edinburgh. Tom Torrance says, Israel was regarded as encircled and grasped by the faithful love of God, who will not let his people go. But he holds on to them throughout their rebellion and their unfaithfulness until he has called forth an answering faithfulness. That is steadfast and true and reflecting his own. Isn't that a lovely commentary too, by the way, for instance, in the story of Jonah? Where God never high-handedly, he never kind of marches in a totalitarian way over someone's choice. But you see that lovely idea? Throughout rebellion and unfaithfulness, he works and he challenges and he patiently chases until he calls forth an answering faithfulness. What a powerful insight into the way that, that God works. But anyway, you see, Hosea is about him restoring this relationship. He's wanting to re-establish, renew that intimacy of the love with Israel. We can call it a marriage or we can call it a covenant. Covenant's a very rich word when we get to the heart of it. Yes, it has a forensic, it has a legal sign, but it doesn't stop there. What worries me today, worries me no end, is that I, I find within particularly the Protestant tradition a move towards the forensic, the judicial, the legal, that becomes so theologically, intellectually accurate but so totally compassionless, dead, <coughs> lifeless, and it's all into winning arguments, even at the expense of people. It conjures up these little theological bunkies who go about, ready to win an argument, and maybe lose a person. See, when I come to look at covenant, I love this definition of it. It's a holy dimension of existence. And then it gets even better when you discover within that holy dimension of existence, faith, faith you see is the consciousness of living in that dimension. Faith 
is not simply the ascent to a mere set of propositions. That's the Greek view. But the Hebrew view is much more dynamic. It is much more charged with life. And it involves the consciousness of living as a total being. Not just subscribing to some things with your mind. Because at the heart, you see, of this relationship, listen again to Abraham Joshua Heschel. I'll talk a little bit about him over these three days. He was a Jew who escaped from Poland before the war, spent most of his life teaching in New York, and his great magnum opus was a a, a thesis on the prophets of Israel. This is what he wrote. What obtains between God and Israel must be understood, not as illegal, but as a personal relationship, as participation, as involvement in tension. Now, now, now he goes on. Now listen to this. And bear in mind, this is an orthodox Hasidic rabbi writer. His chosen sphere is that of covenant. His relationship to his partner is one of benevolence and affection. God's life interacts with the life of the people. If an orthodox rabbi can write that, what on earth should not new covenant believers be able to speak of? Of the intimacy, the the, the reciprocity, the mutuality of the interrelationship of a living Lord and his people. How on earth can we turn this into a moribund, dead, intellectual, forensic science? When it is an invitation to living, vibrant relationship and response. Oh, we have so much if we're only ready to learn from these Hebrew roots and this Hebraic perspective. We begin to understand Paul was not simply a European Protestant. Jesus didn't parachute in to Germany at the time of the Reformation. We've got to regain because we've lost so much. We've lost so very much. People get scared of this. They oh, we're going down the road of political side. No, we're not. This is nothing to do with kind of modern politics. It's about doing justice to our DNA. And our DNA takes us back to the patriarchs, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Where God enters in not to a contract, but God enters in to a covenant. And at the heart, it's all about relationships and as we think about those relationships come back now just to Hosea and I want us to think a little bit more in depth just as we close about these words and I will betroth you to me forever and I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and in steadfast love and mercy I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord Can I take you for a minute into a Jewish home first thing in the morning? And I want us to observe a man at prayer. And by doing so, I want us to think about what we can learn. Now please do not misunderstand me on this. I am not idealizing the modern expressions of rabbinic Judaism. I'm not. 
I'm not saying we become Jews. I'm not saying we pretend to be Jews. I'm not into this business of people who go to Israel for two days, buy a keep a prayer shawl, and then start to worship on a Saturday and think everybody else has got it wrong. That's not what this is about. But it's about asking, what can we learn from Jesus in his Jewish context? For many years, I've prayed a prayer from Jared Manley Hopkins, the Jesuit poet. Lord of life, send my roots rain. Teach me the roots of my faith, what I can learn. And as we do so, there's some things that we can learn. And every morning, an observant Jewish man will take out what is called his tefillin, sometimes called phylacteries. And as he puts them on, can I borrow you because you have just a shirt on? Thank you. Can you give me your name? Dan. Dan. Could you roll up your left sleeve, Dan? Sure. You can have a look at these yourselves, mostly. And I, I got them as teaching objects and with a little bit of difficulty, only because I knew an Orthodox Jew who I would use as a guide. Have a look at these. They're beautifully, they're masterly made from one complete piece of leather. Inside this little box, which is sewn up, there would normally be three pieces of scripture. In mine, there is none, because they would not sell these to a Gentile, normally. But because I have the word of a friend who would guarantee that I would never sell these on, then I was able to buy them without the scripture in them. Do you know the price difference? With the scripture, I bought them for $100. With the scriptures in them, they would have been $700. But the first object is that this will be put on the head. Because the first thing is you are dedicating at the beginning of the day your mind to the living God. The next stage, and I know you're sitting thinking, you know, can this all become so formal and so mechanical? Yes, of course it could. You take me to any evangelical prayer meeting that isn't vulnerable <laughs> to becoming mechanical, repetitive. Wouldn't have a prayer meeting near them, but if you're there long enough, same people, same order, same prayers, well, we wouldn't have a prayer book near us. I genuinely don't believe that even the evangelical community can take the moral high ground and say they've been immunized against mechanical repetitive. <coughs> you know, we've got to, to listen at times. It takes work to keep fresh in this relationship. As the mind has been dedicated, then this next box is bound on near the arm. And then, so the arm is held out, you just close that into your, close to your heart. This is wind on one, two, three, four, five, 
6, 7, and then let's wind down round the normal wedding finger, as you see here. And as it's put over the back of the hand, which I'm not just going to do now, it's got the same shape of the three prongs on this letter here. It's the first letter, Shin, of Shaddai. The first name, one of the most powerful names of God. So the idea is, you see, that each day you bind your mind. Now look at the challenge before us today, particularly for men. The challenge to keep your mind pure today, you only have to go into the, well, the newspaper section, what used to be behind brown paper. Now it's in the front page of many of our so-called dailies. The challenge to purity of mind. The challenge to commit your mind each morning to the living God. The challenge to commit not only your mind, but your emotions, your thoughts, your hearts, your feelings to the living God. Could it become a formula? Of course it could. But it need not. It's a fresh acknowledgement because as a man winds this on every day, he quotes the Lord himself. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. There's actually the quotation from Hosea that each day it's like a renewal of the marriage. And here's the fascinating thing is, can you hold that one I don't know if any of you remember if you ever did any Latin at school. Next to my wife, there's only one other woman I've spent more time with, and that was my Latin teacher. She used to keep me in every day. <laughs> She's not as bad as my literary teacher. She said, Maxwell, you are intellectually constipated. <laughs> now, there's been a little movement over the years. <laughs> but, by the way, but here's the, here's the striking thing is, you see the word religion that's got such a bad press today. Religion actually comes from two Latin words. Ligare, which means to bind. So re, ligare, what is happening each day? I am binding myself. I am rebinding myself to the living God. Isn't that a wonderful picture? Isn't that a wonderful celebration of the intimacy of love? That's what we're here for, for these three days. To rebind ourselves. This restoration of the bond. Ideally, we do it every day, but we all get tired. We all get stressed. But what an opportunity where God says, now look, here I'm giving you the opportunity to rebind yourself. When you think about this, and I'm not saying we go away and buy these, but what I'm saying is the lesson that God taught in the kindergarten is still with us. For he may not invite us to bind these on every day, but is the obligation any less with the indwelling power and presence of the Spirit of the living God? To bring our minds, to bring our emotions before God on a daily basis. 
to recommit ourselves to this God. I don't know about you, but I can well sing that verse from, you know, Come thou fount of every blessing. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm restrained, you know, constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee, prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. I struggle with it. Prone to leave the God I love, but here's my heart, O God, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. Sometimes, no, I feel like a ship sitting alongside the pier. I know with the best intentions in the world, the currents would take me away. I need to be anchored. I need to be bound. I need to be tied. Do you ever watch, especially some of you near the ports, and you watch these huge, huge ships that come in, and they've got to throw out the huge hawsers first, and they pull you in and they draw you in. See, this is of intimacy. This is the intimacy like of a marriage relationship. This is warm. This is not about rules. Even, and he wasn't particularly known as an evangelical scholar, but even old Walter Eichrode, he said this is a living fellowship of love that can never be satisfied with the formal fulfillment of obligations. This is not about formalities, legalities. This is not, you know, about legislation and kind of the ugly side of fundamentalism. It is cruel and callous and, and so judgmental and legalistic. This is about intimacy and love. This is about relationship with the living God. A relationship that transcends the petty parochialism of denominationalism. This is something that transcends so many of the divisions that we have created ourselves in our church history. This is an intimacy with the living God. That's refreshing and restorative. Can it become formal? Of course, as I've said. But need it be? No, I think we can. Did Jesus wear these? I think we can make a very strong case, actually, particularly in the light of the evidence from Qumran. Because at Qumran, they have found these little phylacteries of the head, much smaller than these. But I would argue very, very strongly there was no way that Yeshua would have been accepted in any synagogue were he not willing to identify as a a Jew of his day. How many times have we seen pictures of him? We've seen him as a Chinese Jesus, a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant Jesus. We've seen him with curly hair. We've seen him with coiffed hair. We've seen him with beautiful I've seen him there recently with almost Eddie Izzard nails. They were as red as could be. But when do we actually see him portrayed? In the context. As a Jew. Abraham Heschel. Abraham Heschel wrote about this. That even within his Jewish community, he was aware of the dangers of becoming legalistic and formal. And this is what he wrote. When as a student he was coming through a stage he was getting a bit rebellious. He says the most important problem which a human being must face daily is how to maintain one's integrity 
In a world where powers, where power, success and money are valued above all else. How to remain clean amidst the mud of falsehood and malice that soil our society? He says, every morning I take a piece of cloth, his prayer show, a talib, neither elegant nor solemn, of no particular aesthetic beauty, a prayer show. I wrap myself in it and I say, how precious is your kindness, O God. The children of man take refuge in the shadow of your wings. How wonderful. And over these couple of days, and indeed every day, we can renew our vows of a marriage relationship, of a loving relationship that is marked by such intensity as we celebrate a love that simply will not let us go. That's the love with which God binds himself. To his people. Think of that bridal imagery that runs through Paul and that brings the scriptures to a consummation. That bride that will come to celebrate the consummation of God's great drama. Let's pray just for a moment. Lord, may this be a time of restoring and refreshing and deepening our intimacy with you, as well as with each other. And through the laughter and through the conversation, through every relationship, may we have a sense it's not just one with each other, it's also one with another and with you. Be a living, dynamic and glorious presence among us. And renew in our mind your commitment, your love, your betrothal. Through Jesus, through whom you've expressed that love to us with such power. Amen. Amen.